Um, anyway, let's uh, get into this. Let me start out with prayer. If you haven't been with us, we've been going through the book of John. This is our 13th sermon in the book of John. I forget how long it goes, but it's been good. I've really enjoyed it. We're just looking at different portraits of Jesus, just different vignettes of who he is to us, who he is to the world, um, who he is as God of the universe. Anyway, but let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We pray that you would come right now um, in the power of your spirit and break down all the things that would seek to destroy our understanding of who you are this morning. Let us hear clearly and see clearly your character, your love, your uh, servant heart for us, for this world, and how we are to emulate that. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you're doing in our hearts and our minds and our lives. Uh, and we, we really just appreciate even the pressures that we're under right now uh, because they all teach us something. And we thank you for that. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, by the way, I hope you guys are all doing well. Uh, I'm a little bit tired of this. I'm ready for it all to be over. There's murmurings about openings sometime in the future. You know, we don't know what that's going to look like, but you know, I hope it's sooner than later because I really want to shake your hands and give you guys a big hug and all that kind of stuff. But turn with me to John chapter 13 if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. I'll read it. We're going to be in John chapter 13. We're going to start firstly with just verses 1 through 5, but we're going to read more as we go get into it. So John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5 say this. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, so he got undressed, right? And he took a towel, uh, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So I want to say to you this morning that today our vignette, our portrait of Jesus is as servant at the very end of his ministry, right? He's alone here with his disciples gathered around dinner, soon to be crucified. He knows that. He's said it over and over again. He's made that clear to them although they haven't really gotten it yet. And the Father's given all things into his hands. That's what it says right there, right? Ultimate power. We believe that Jesus is God incarnate, God come in flesh. He says ultimate power, right? So the question is, what would I do with my last day with all that power in the universe, right? Now, assuming that I would do good with it, we have to assume that, right? I'd frantically call all the powerful people I know to continue on with my plans after I'm gone. I'd establish peace on earth. I'd take out evil structures around the globe. I'd crush enemies. I'd leave my legacy. I'd set my people into high places, right? Um, it would be a waste if I didn't use that last day really well if I had ultimate power, which I know, and you and I both know, uh, that you don't want me to have ultimate power. <laughs> now, let's realize that walking around Jerusalem made your feet uh, dirty on all those dusty roads with whatever was on them, animal feces and whatnot. Uh, who knows what? Everyone wore sandals, and so their feet got dirty. Now, people bathed, but throughout the day, their feet just got dirty, right? So homeowners provided a slave to wash the feet of guests, 
and there is a lowly job. The, the disciples are sitting here with Jesus around this table or whatever, and no one's washed their feet. Sitting around the table, feeling neglected. Somebody's dropped the ball. I need my feet washed. You know, where is the slave, right? But Jesus has an object lesson planned here today. He played the, the role of slave or servant at that table. One by one, he washed their feet, every single one of them, which was very significant. I did this once in an art project. I had a class of art students, and I uh, honestly, I slipped, stripped down to my underwear, put a towel around my waist, and I washed every single foot in the room. It was, it was quite a powerful moment. You know, it took time to do this. We can imagine the quietness, the awkwardness, each, each one of them feeling kind of uncomfortable. Their rabbi undresses down to his underwear, you know, wraps a towel around himself, kneels and washes. And he's more than just a rabbi. Peter's already known this, right? He's God incarnate. He's into in all this intimacy in this room, right? They're uncomfortable. God, God on his knees and a towel washing and wiping and loving these guys. And these were the last moments for Jesus, right? Honing his focus, continuing what he started to the very last moment. It says he chose to love his own who were in the world, those right in front of him, those he can see, talk to, has loved, spent time with, and built up, doing this to the very end. Now, with ultimate power, he could have taken out Rome. He could have established a theocracy, right? He could have set up a system of government. He could have wiped out evil and put his people in place. I mean, he's God. He can do anything he wants, right? Can he, though, right? Because God the Son chose to sit in a room with his closest disciples washing their feet in his last moments, the, the full extent of love, right? The power of love so opposite of all of their expectations. You know, it's exactly because of this sort of sacrificial love that the crowds who are yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, praises the king, will turn on him and yell, crucify him the next day. He's not what they expected or even wanted. So you have to ask yourself the question, does Jesus' character does, does the character of God even allow him the capability of using power in controlling harsh ways? I don't think Jesus' power is power as we view it. His power is love, nothing more and nothing less, right? Now, I don't mean love like it's defined out there in the world today, like sentimentality, doing anything you want kind of love, mere affinity, uh, or just affection, but powerful, active, sacrificial love, love with standards, which wants better for you, which brings life and moves and acts and sacrifices and focuses on those right in front of you and never gives up and denying any notions of worldly militaristic power or financial manipulation, love in action, benefiting others. Love which lays aside your personal dignity, just like Jesus did with his closing. You know, the opposite of what the world sees as power. He defined it in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. It says this, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So his is a power that lifts from underneath. It serves. It's not controlling from above, holding down. But we want leaders who conquer, not sacrifice, right? Not leaders who get naked and vulnerable and kneel and serve. We want them to take over. We want to be on the winning team with a leader who crushes evil. We especially don't want a model of sacrificial love, which demands its emulation. That's even harder. And that's what, that's why in verses six through 10, in John 13, verses six through 10, when he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Right? You, you have to, you have to ask that question from Peter with incredulity, incredulity, right? If that's how you say the word. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand right now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter has a change of heart. He says to him, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head as well, right? And Jesus says to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Why is Peter clean? Peter's clean because he knows who Jesus is. He's been with him. He's given himself to Christ. But Peter's is our our reaction, right? You can't do that. You're the king. You're the Messiah. I serve you. You don't serve me. But that's really false humility, isn't it? Faith, see, faith is paradoxical, isn't it? Greatness through humility, life through death, to get, you give. Paradox. Seemingly contradictory things. Jesus serves in love, and we die to our pride. You know, some people serve out of ulterior motives to find favor or to look spiritual or to get attention or to control and manipulate. It's all false humility, diametrically opposed to kingdom love. Jesus serves out of love and was given the name above all names as a result. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, great passage if you want to go read that after the sermon. You don't understand it right now, Peter, but in my kingdom... Love is power. Power is love. And when we understand our need, our our need for him, we understand that, and we receive Christ into our hearts, then through Jesus, we are empowered to love others in humility, just as he did. Then going back to our passage in verses 12 through 15, it says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. So he does have authority, right? And he receives that that authority. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, here's the deal. None of us really learn just by being told something, right? Peter couldn't just be told. He had to experience this kind of love for himself. He had to have his feet washed. 
For God to be naked, kneeling in front of them like a slave, doing the work, the lowest of jobs, to grasp who God is and what God expects of him. As a matter of fact, there are many lessons here. Firstly, in accepting the true Jesus, we are bathed and we are clean already. In, in, in theological terms, it's called being justified. It's, a, it's actually a legal term that we are, we are set free by the judge. We can only have intimacy with God through Jesus' cleansing, his full cleansing, right? As Peter said, we must also say, I need cleansing. Wash me completely. Allowing Jesus to wash us with his sacrificial blood as this situation foreshadows his blood on the cross. It's by that blood we have eternal life with him. But as long as I hold on to my own control of my life, not admitting my need and my helplessness, I'll never experience intimacy with Jesus. I may have spent a lot of time around him. I may have gone to church my whole life. I may have taken the bath of a thousand sermons. But until I submit myself, give myself in faith to his cleansing blood, I, do, I, I don't ha- I have true intimacy in life with him. Secondly, in Jesus, we are continually washed. In other words, we are sanctified. Great word to learn. Jesus washes us, right? Justification. Jesus washes us, resulting in us being reconciled to God for good. In theological terminology, it means that he imputed his righteousness his, it, to us. In layman's term, it means his perfect record was attributed to me. He paid the price for my sin once and for all. And when God looks at me now, he sees Jesus' perfect record, not my past record. And that's justification. However, as we walk through life, we get dirty, which is why he says the one who has been bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, Peter. Jesus told Peter he's washed, he's justified in Christ, but he'll also be washed from the dirt of life from here on out. Justification is a a, a one-time washing of restoration and reconciliation with God. But sanctification is a continual washing throughout life of learning to live in Christ and becoming like him in his character, being developed, right? Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a great verse about this. 1 John 1, 7 through 2, 2 speaks of this. It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins, washes our feet, right? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, he writes, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's paid it, right? And not only for ours, it says, but also for the sins of the world, the whole world. So Jesus washes us clean via the cross, that is justification, but Jesus continually washes us by his word as we're made into his likeness. We're sanctified, we're washed by his word over and over again, walking with him, allowing him to wash us, restoring intimacy, not only with him, but also with others around us. 
And thirdly, we're called to live out this kind of love, his love with others, with family, with neighbor, with friend, and even our enemies. These guys have argued who'd be the greatest in the kingdom or first in the kingdom of God, right? They're vying for attention and position. You know, it's quite normal to do that. They've sought this worldly power. They've, they've misunderstood his power of love up until this point. They needed this object lesson. You know, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster writes this. He says, in some ways, we'd prefer to hear Jesus' call to deny father and mother, house and land, for the sake of the gospel, rather than his word to wash feet. Radical self-denial gives us the feel of adventure. If we forsake all, we even have the chance of glorious martyrdom. But in service, like everyday service, in service, we're banished to the mundane, the ordinary, the trivial. Isn't that a great quote? You know, some of us dream great dreams of, you know, loving the poor in far off countries. We want to be missionaries and go out there and do all this stuff. Yet we examine, when we examine somebody's life here, we often find that they've neglected to love those right in front of them. If you don't do it here, you won't do it there. Now is the moment to act. Now is the moment to follow Jesus. Because Jesus' love is every day. It's simple and it's seen in very small ways of service. It's mundane. It's not too sexy sometimes. He loves us to model how we're to love to other, love, show love to others. We may admit we need his washing, but when we hear this call to sacrificial everyday love, we kind of pause sometimes. It's not towards religious theory or rote imitation. It's making his life ours, loving those in front of us until the very end, laying aside personal desire, assimilating the kingdom power of love into our lives. Bernard of Clairvaux once said, learn the lesson that if you are to do the work of a prophet, what you need isn't a scepter, but a garden hoe. The same thing he said to Peter, we have no real intimacy and relationship with him without the freedom to love as he did and be loved as he does. Worldly notions of power and desire disintegrate individuals and communities, but Jesus' power of love integrates individuals and communities, making us whole. But we make ignorant spiritual vows, don't we? We say, well, we're Americans, we don't need anybody else, right? But those are just lies that we've swaddled like baby birds do a worm, right? If I can't wash your feet, I can't have intimacy with you. Like the indifferent person, right, who can't see past their own life, lacking compassion or any other thought of others, no time to love and serve others in practical ways. It doesn't even come to their mind. Or the dependent person, right? Always taking, never giving, not recognizing God's call to, to, to them to, to also serve someone else. They may not think themselves even capable of serving other people. That's more lies that we swallow, by the way. Instead of living in the paradox of, of getting from giving, they take and they fear what it means to give. Also, we have the independent person who says, I don't need anybody. But if I don't allow you to wash my feet, I don't have intimacy with you. Some are super spiritual, right? Washing feet in front of everybody else, you know, always doing something for other people, but will never 
uh, humble themselves before others. They'll never go and ask for prayer. They'll never ask for help. Serving out of false humility and some, you know, and it just doesn't very really jive with us, does it? We, we, we see through it after a while. And some of us live independently thinking you can go it alone, right? They don't, they don't need anybody. They've got all the answers. They, they may be polite, but, but will never fully gain intimacy with anyone. Pride and lies, pride and lies. Just lay them all aside. You don't need them. Come in humility, right? Ready to serve and be served, ready to love and be loved, and ready to know others and be known by others. Mature Christians are neither indifferent nor dependent nor independent in community, but they are interdependent interdependent. They realize their need for give and for take in community. Mature Christians aren't super spiritual or indifferent. They get behind Jesus. They walk to the cross. In process, our pride is killed off, which keeps us from loving and being loved. You know, in his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis talked about the wonderful, wonderful risk of loving and being loved. And he's being sort of facetious, but listen to this. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal, your pet, right? Wrap it up carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it'll change. It'll not be broken. It'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. And the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Love hurts sometimes. And when we refuse to love like Jesus, we become hardened and dead. Even though love hurts, it's a wonderful adventure. Jesus goes even farther with his love than we would. He said, not all of you are clean. And right there, he's referring, we know, to Judas, who's plotted against him. Because we know the end of the story, right? Judas desired power, and he acted on it, and he's, he's wounded Jesus already. He's bathed in Christ's love, but he rejects it. Jesus had all the power. He knew what Judas was doing, but he chose to get naked and wash Judas's feet along with all the others. Isn't that interesting? We would have advised Jesus on Judas differently, saying, you know, oh, Jesus, you got to deal with that guy. He's, he's challenging your authority right in front of everybody. Make a spectacle of him. If you don't, Everything will think you're, everybody will think you're weak and, and they'll try to get, the, get over on you. We would have advised Jesus to strip Judas naked. But Jesus doesn't fret at all about this worldly challenge to his power. It doesn't matter what Judas does or says. It'll not change the plan. Actually, Judas even serves the plan in this. And that's the power of love, the ability to look beyond someone's sin, to trust that God is in control of the situation despite what's going on around you, despite the chaos, despite the coronavirus, right? You know, Democrats and Republicans seem to be outright enemies right now, using their power against one another, right? Thankfully, there are exceptions in this world. 
There's an old story. In 1973, news of the shooting of Senator Stennis, the chairman of the Armed Forces Committee, shocked Washington and the nation, right? And for, for nearly seven hours, Senator Stennis was on the operating table at Walter Reed Hospital. Less than two hours later, another politician was driving home when he heard about the shooting, and he turned his car around and he drove directly to the hospital. And in the hospital, he noticed that the staff was just swamped, like they are today, right, with the, the coronavirus. And, he, and they couldn't keep up with all the incoming calls about the senator's condition, so he spotted an unattended switchboard, and he sat down, and he voluntarily went to work, taking calls all night long until daylight. And sometime the next day, he stood up and he stretched and, you know, things had slowed down enough that he could leave and he put on his overcoat. And just before he left, he introduced himself quietly to the operator next to him, who he hadn't even had a chance to talk to yet. He said, I'm Senator Mark Hatfield, happy to help. And he walked out. The press could hardly handle it. There seemed to be no way for a conservative Republican to give a liberal Democrat the tip of the hat and let alone spend hours doing a menial task to serve him in his favor and be happy to do it. Didn't make sense. We don't get that. You know, Jesus didn't serve only those people that he preferred or liked. It might have been easy to wash John's feet, the beloved disciple, right? Yet remember, John and James were always trying to get ahead. Or Simon Peter, right? who Jesus knew would deny him three times before dawn. Jesus tells him that. Or Thomas, who would doubt the resurrection later. Or Ju- you know, Judas, as we know, who would sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Crazy. Yet in his last moments, Jesus doesn't allow any of this to cloud his love for these men. His love worked despite the chaos and the brokenness of all of those guys sitting there that day. He loved them equally. It's easy to love those you like. True servants love everyone equally, no favorites, no enemies, the unlovable included. And then in verse 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one sent who sent me. So, love's a Trinity thing. We see it interactive in the Trinity. We, we receive the Holy Spirit ourselves, and we receive Jesus. When we receive Jesus, we receive Jesus, we receive the Father, don't we? And the completeness of God's love hems us in, and it works in and through us, developing true intimacy and community, not only with God, with the Trinity, but with, with others around us. So here's the question. Can we say that we really love like Jesus loved? (laughs) That's a big question. Don't answer too quickly. Do we hold grudges and expect others to measure up or dwell on past hurts or think others, uh, think ourselves better than others? Do we confront every little wrong that comes out of somebody or do we trust that God's at work and his plans won't be thwarted anyway? That he'll be glorified no matter what anybody else does in the room. You know, position and wealth and looks and personality and being in the in crowd and intelligence and education and, you know, all that stuff. We're, we're tempted to wield these things over others in, you know, use our power. Yet what does community look like governed by the power of Christ's love where people wash each other's feet? 
where members spend time with the neglected or don't hold out on commitments in case something better comes along. Where they don't break commitments, but they show up since they know it means something to somebody who's prepared things. Where they send out an important email and it actually gets a response. (laughs) Where members show up on, on time since they know others have worked so hard at a party or an event or a get together when we eventually are able to get together at some point. Where members offer time and resources to do menial tasks. Where kids aren't shoved off to the side and just babysat, but they're included in community life to the extent that they can be. Where people say, thank you, and I appreciate you, and I love you, and they're sensitive to build others up and not tear them down. Where people forego a worship service even to teach somebody else's kids where people forgive without expecting retribution and where wrongs are overlooked, showing interest and care to others, where people hug and pray for each other on the spot or pray for their neighbors around their home or people, you know, people to be relied on, where the outside community points to us and says they care, filled with joy, filled with unity, a nice place where you want to be, a place where everybody knows your name, to reference an old Cheers uh, TV show. Does that sound like 6-8? I think it does. You know, one woman at Linwood Park once said to me, I'm not a Christian, but if I were, I would go to your church. You guys are great. You're really nice. You're really fun. You're helpful. And you just emanate joy. Now, is that not the best compliment you could get? You guys have been great. You've been great foot washers. You really have. I've seen you guys pray over people at community events. I've seen you visit neighbors and pray over them. I've, you've, you've helped others out financially. Our, 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 uh, what do you, <laughs> our benevolence fund is, is growing as we speak. You've gone to graduations and plays or someone else's life event just to show support. Even their children's plays or, you know, activities. Church members have gone to those things to show support of our kids even. Many of you have taught our children on Sunday mornings. You've played bingo with old folks, you know. You've emptied trash and planted in town. You've recently, our community groups have given gifts to first responders and hurting businesses. We've set up movies in the park. We've, community leaders praise us. It's awesome. Some of you have cared for my kids while we were at the hospital. You prayed over us. Uh, you prayed over our missionaries. Uh, every Sunday morning we do that kind of stuff. You've given money to our benevolence fund, as I said, and you've supported kids, and you've worked in the Middle East through our kinship network. You've cooked. You've served others. You've given meals to pregnant mothers who just had a baby. Well, they're not pregnant anymore. They just had their baby. But you know what I'm saying. You know, Donna Christie, I think, has written a card to every single person in this church in the past couple of weeks. And many of you have, have been calling others during this pandemic just to see how they're doing. Mary Nicoletti woke up in the middle of the night and prayed for my father with cancer this past week and then sent him an encouraging note about it. Dick Best prayed with a coworker at Trader Joe's in the back room there. And he, and, he, and he said to everybody that he makes it a point to call numerous people throughout his day to make sure they are, they're, they're all doing okay during this pandemic. Coworkers, colleagues, you know, uh, family members, church members, and, and people in his neighborhood. That's really cool. Good job. That's feet washing. Keep up the good work, right? 
You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, he said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what, what reward will you get? Are you not even, are, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Now here's the kicker verse, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What's perfection? What's perfection? Is it being good-looking and wealthy and smart and intelligent and powerful, never making a mistake? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's perfection. Perfection is living in the love of Christ, exuding, emanating, emulating the love of Christ. Perfection is loving well out of the grace of Jesus in the power of his spirit, emulating the heart of the Father despite your own faults or shortcomings, loving those right in front of you to the very end in very practical ways. So what can you do in that vein during this time of lockdown? How can you be serving others? And how, if you need it, can you be asking others to serve you? Those are good questions. I want to pray before we close. And I really am glad you're all here. And uh, I am hoping to see you soon. And by all means, come by, get a sweatshirt, or just come by to say hi to our ha- at our house. We'd love to see you. And uh, Or if you need a visit, let me know. I I need all the excuses in the world to drive out to your house and say hi to you and pray for you. I really do. I would love it. It would be a blessing and a service to me to invite me to your house to, to pray for you. It really would. I, it would make me feel good. All right? So God bless you guys. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your model to us. It is so unlike what we would have written If we sat down with pen in hand to write this story of God and his people, God and the world, we never would have come up with this. This is not the thing that we would have done. We would have had the militaristic conqueror. We would have had the guy that wields power over people and not serves with power from underneath. Father God, we love you so much. We love you because you are so unlike what we would have created which is really a testimony that you are true and real. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So to him who is able to give you or to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen.